Welcome back, folks. This is Mark Steiner right here on WEAA, home of the Big 4-0 Birthday Bash, taking place Sunday, January the 28th. More information at WEAA.org. It's also I want to welcome you to the Mark Steiner Show and Sound Bites, our weekly look at food, farming, our energy systems, and the environment. Uh, we begin our program today uh, with Andrea Spiliadis. Billy is, of course, a farmer at Heckle Farm and performer with Baltimore Hoop Love. Uh, Sasha Jones will be here in a moment. She's a collective sales, sales manager sales manager at the Farm Alliance Baltimore, uh, doing both doing incredibly interesting work in urban farming here. We're going to be talking with him about that. Please join us at 410-319-8888. You can write to us here by email at talk at steinershow.org. You can also text us at Mark Steiner, but do join in. Spilly, good to see you, brother. Good to see you, Mark. So where do we begin? Let's see. So last time I talked to you, you were running for city council, but now you're back at the farm. Yes, doing <laughs> much more productive things. <laughs> <laughs> so talk about the, 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 to talk tell our listeners what Heckle Farm is. Where is it, and just what are you doing there? Well, we're we're a very small farm in Arcadia, so just up e- in Nova Scotia. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, yeah, <laughs> just east of here, we're we're about uh, five minutes down the road from Morgan, um, and we have just over or just under a quarter of an acre uh, front back side yard. Um, and about six years ago, six and a half years ago, we bought the house. It was a vacant house uh, with a totally overgrown yard and decided to farm it. Um, we, it, it farming is not something that uh, I had any familiarity with really before starting it. So it's really been a learning uh, as we go kind of a thing. But uh, after six years now, we've, we're growing over a ton of food I mean, a uh, year. Literal? Or is that a figurative? Literally over a ton. How many acres? Uh, less than a quarter of an acre. I mean, you grow a ton of food on less than a quarter of an acre? That's right. Damn. So <laughs> it can be done, yes. And in the house just walks Sasha Jones. Sasha, how are you? I'm well. How Good are to see you. Good to see you. <laughs> hey, Spelly. So, what's happening, Sasha? Two of Baltimore's really very cool hip farmers. Sasha Jones is now collective sales manager of the Farm Alliance Baltimore. I'm glad they got so hip they're hiring the right people. This is a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> so talk a bit about, before we come back to Spilly, I want to hear some of him, but t- talk a bit about your, uh, the place you're working on and the, and the work you're doing. Okay, well, I work for the Farm Alliance of Baltimore now, um, and we are a collective of 12 um, and growing urban farms here in the city all over about. Um, And basically, the mission of our organization is to make farming more viable and food more accessible in Baltimore City. And the ways in which we do that is we provide sales outlets and platforms for um, the farmers as well as just infrastructure and capacity building, that sort of thing. Um, we have, you've probably seen us at Waverly Farmers Market on Saturdays. And also on Penn, in Pennsylvania Avenue, the farmers market there? We're not at the Pennsylvania oh, Avenue farmers okay. market, but we just started a stall at Lexington Market. That's right, that's what I meant to say. Yeah. Right, 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 right. Um, and so we're now selling at two market stalls. One, um, well, right now we're in winter schedule, so every other Saturday at Waverly, and then um, every Wednesday at Lexington. Actually, we're we're piloting that, so we're only there right now until the end of January, and we're going to take a break and regroup and come back in the spring um, with hopefully some new things. So to me, it's really kind of, both things are really important. It's exciting to me that in a community around Sandtown, Lexington Market on Pennsylvania Avenue, that this is happening. I mean, I think it's so important, right? Lexington, the the major one down, um, oh, down. On, on Utah. On Utah. Yeah, on yeah, Utah, yeah. Utah, Utah, Utah. yeah. 
Um, so there is fresh food at uh, the is. Avenue Market. Got, yeah. yeah, right, right, because we had them on before, so I got the two confused. Yeah, the No Boundaries Coalition, they're right. doing some great work um, at the Avenue Market, and they, um, from what I understand, it's, it's going to be even bigger and better in the future. So, I mean, what do you think the potential is here? For this city and food and farming, given what, the, what you all are doing, the, you know, the, working with the Farm Alliance of the Farmers, and you know, we, we just finished talking about your ton of food coming out of a quarter of an acre. I mean, what do you think the potential is, Spilly? I mean, I, I think on a small scale, the potential is is tremendous. Um, there's all kinds of amazing things that can happen. Uh, you know, even in just a, a small farm like mine or or ours. Uh, in especially in conjunction with a few other farms in a neighborhood, um, so on the small scale, I think it's it's very exciting. On the bigger scale, I think all of this is possible uh, to be a transformative thing for the entire economy of of a city like Baltimore, um, and for the environment of a city like Baltimore. But it really takes a, a kind of bigger paradigm shift. Uh, in thinking about food and how it is uh, produced and distributed and, uh, you know, so it's going to take a changing of the economy uh, to make it feasible on a large scale, but it is absolutely possible. Sasha, what's your take? I mean, I, I agree 100%. I, I love Spilly's project because it's a perfect representation of what a neighborhood can do and what an individual or a couple can do in order to grow food and share that with the folks around them. And like he was saying, you know, if you bring along a few neighbors, then you have a vibrant, wealthy food community, you know, on your block. Um, I think with Farm Alliance, we're at that sweet spot between being small growers and having the potential and the capacity to grow larger and to and to really start talking about how can we shift the economy. So we're not there yet by any way, shape, or form, but um, with new projects like our Lexington um, project, like um, going to Waverly Farmer's Market, we're starting to join our food together and we're starting to think more smartly about how much can we actually grow in the city and where will it go? Thinking about it, you know, when we put it in the where is it going? Um, you know, what communities is it going to serve? Are we going to sell it to restaurants? Are we going to sell it in our neighborhood farm stands? Are we going to do a joint CSA? Um, and so, it's and a lot of our farmers have gone from where Spilly is to now starting to think about like, okay, this is a business and we're creating an industry here. Um, and the city is on our side, and that's a wonderful thing. Um, and in the the months to come, there's going to be more land available. So there's a lot. There's just so much potential, and so many people actually tapping into that potential. And I see it going nowhere but up from here. No, I know one of the things I learned from you in the last segment we did months and months back from the other place you were working with from Park Heights is that is that you can actually develop a CSA that's affordable for poor working people in this town where they can afford the food, which I think is really an incredibly important thing that people can overlook. Because almost every other city I've investigated and talked to people in when we do this kind of farming, that it's um, always geared towards restaurants and communities of means and not being able to figure out how to make that leap. But people here are really trying to work on how to make that leap, which I think is really one of the significant differences about Baltimore, an important one as well. Definitely, and we currently have two farms that I know of for sure that have work, um, they have work shares as well. So at no, I know at Real Food Farm, their Perlman, Perlman Place site, um, 
you can do your work share hours there and you are able you're eligible for a CSA box and they include um, eggs and they have like dried beans that they did this year um, in their CSA box and another of our farms Hidden Harvest they have a chicken co-op and they are starting a compost co-op and they also offer work share for CSA so not only could you join as a work member to get uh, eggs um, and I believe they just got they're getting all new layers this year so you also some of some, their older members got chickens um, um, slaughtered chickens as well. Um, you you know you put in the man hours and you can get the food. Or they're they're very affordable. Um, we offer a double dollars program, so we match up to ten dollars at any of our farms um, on any produce that you're buying. And so it's it's really yeah. It's I mean it's happening and it's and it's great and it's it's done with the people of Baltimore in mind. It's not about who can we attract or you know what's the highest price we can get for this. Of course we're thinking about how can we earn a living wage for our farmers and how can they sell their products in a way that is going to make them money and allow them to get investment dollars to put back in their farms. But it's all it's also um, very well thought about in terms of the people that it's going to. So folks, I want you to join us here at 410-319-8888. Write to us here at talkingsteinershow.org by email or tweet us at Mark Steiner. Uh, you, maybe you're involved in farming. We want to hear from you. Maybe you have a, back, a garden in your backyard. There's a community garden you want to talk about. Talk about where you see the future of this going. Uh, we do want to hear from you. Just heard Sasha Jones. We we'll also have Spiliatis here. Spilia here. Uh, Spilly Spiliatis here as well. So Spilly, let's digress for a moment. Not digress, but move, talk a bit about this classes here. Aren't you going to teach some courses here with this? I am. So talk yeah. about that. So uh, I'm coming up uh, this winter, beginning of spring. I'm going to be doing 10 weeks of classes. Um, they're going to be on a variety of, of topics, uh, both, uh, you know, topics in terms of uh, getting your hands dirty, literally, and, uh, you know, how do you do farming? What are the, the, the techniques, uh, especially for the kind of farming that I'm working on, which is called permaculture? Uh, it's totally organic, and it really works with the rhythms of nature. Um, but we're also going to be talking about the politics of farming. Uh, we're going to be talking about food, uh, seed distribution, um, how you can make money on certain crops, you know, what are the ca cash crops, uh, you know, how can you farm year-round. So it's going to be a lot of different topics. There's going to be 10 different uh, big topics, and I'll be teaching it twice a week on Sundays and Wednesdays. You're raising chickens too? We are raising chickens, yes. If you, want to, you can raise chickens. You can't have roosters, but you can raise chickens in Baltimore. Yes. Right? That's right. Yeah. That you, can ha you can have right? two per thousand square feet and up to ten, I think, legally. That's um, right. On, on, you know, on one property, but you also can apply for a special permit to have more if you're ready for that. <laughs> if you're ready for that. <laughs> Because chickens do and take some work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and if your neighbors are on board, for sure. But I mean, yeah, I mean, well, the roosters one that makes the noise. Yeah, yeah. Right? So we can't have roosters <laughs> or ducks. Um, no but ducks. Chick no ducks. But goats. You can have goats you if anyone wants goats. to venture out to goat world. We need more goats in Baltimore. We do. <laughs> <laughs> we do yeah. Goat milk is good. Right, and they can eat all your poison ivy and... Uh, they can deal with your your yard in wonderful ways. Oh no, no. I, yeah. I learned this. This is a total digression. We'll come right back to Baltimore and what the, more about the school. But the lot, lot of time I spent in Wyoming, which was a lot over the last twenty years, one of the things I, I met this woman there, and she had a herd of goats, and she made her living 
by renting out a herd of goats. The people are all across the plains. They eat all the vines. Yeah. They eat all the thorns. They eat the stuff that covers the ground. Then she moves on to the next farm. Mm-hmm. That's right. I mean, yeah. they, she actually she makes a living by her goats. Not eating them, not milking them, but letting them eat. And that's that potential <laughs> we're talking about. It's like the policy is on our side for the agricultural sector to grow. And it's not only farming. It's exactly what you said. You can rent out your goats to do uh, invasive species management, you know, which is what she was doing. That's what it's, you know, if you want to look it up. But, <laughs> but I, I, I need to bring them out to our woods and let them eat through the woods. That's exactly Yeah. <laughs> you know, all of the the... Uh, invasives like the ivy, um, you know, kudzu and uh, tree of heaven, the things that, that we all hate. Um, you know, you can use goats for that. We can have rabbits here in the city uh, and rabbit fertilizer is is great um, for crops and you don't, it's it's very food safe. <sighs> so you don't have the same regulations as with horse or cow manure. So, you know, people look at urban agriculture and say, you know, is the potential and the capacity there to actually build an industry and create an economy around it? And it certainly is, but it, it comes with looking at it in a very holistic way um, and partnering with, you know, we have a lot of cool projects like the R House and the uh, the Be More Kitchen project, the Baltimore Food Hub that's on its way, partnering with uh, food businesses with farming and agricultural businesses and how do we create that sweet spot. So that's, you know, again, that's what Lexington is for us. We're partnering with chefs in the area to do a hot meal every week um, with the farmer's produce. And it's it's great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the thing you have built here is a Baltimore Farm and Circus. So talk, what does that mean? Right. So, uh, you know, <clears throat> being a, a small farm and trying to actually be subsistence and, and you know, uh, be somewhat off the grid, uh, we have not been able to fully rely on the farm part of things to, to survive. So we we have a side business as well, um, and we do circus work uh, at Heckle Farm. We do circus. What does it mean? Well, we do hula hoops. Uh, <laughs> we perform and bring them around town. Uh, we do stilts and juggling and face paint and the whole nine yards. So we do circus, and we like to combine them by calling it Circus Farm. And uh, really, the reason why we do that is because. The farm part especially needs uh, an entertainment side to it to hook people in, to really make people excited. Um, and so we do that. We just combine the two, sort of edutainment. Edutainment. I like that. I like that. <laughs> so, I mean, I, you know, if you had this vision for where, how we could get to the place you both think we could get, get to in Baltimore with agriculture and farming, I mean, because people, I mean, and how much it could sustain communities. I've been talk to lots of folks that there's there's so many options to think about, whether it's the vertical farming that's taking place in many places, rooftop farming, backyard farming, um, how that helps <coughs> deal with our ecosystem and more. I mean, the thing that I think when you look at examples from across the country and across the globe, there's a lot of potential here with our vacant lots. I mean, I know of two underground sources of fish in town. I won't because they're doing it in their basement and they're kind of selling it to community. Mm-hmm. But they're, they're raising fish by them because, you know, it's too much rigmarole to go through all the regulations. But they are actually raising healthy fish to sell to people in neighborhoods in the inner city. And, I mean, that th- these, these, are, these are important things that, that we have to develop. Right. Well, I, you know, I mean, one, one thing, it, one way to think about it is uh, – 
you know, if you look at some of the crops that you can grow right in your backyard, we grow garlic pretty heavy. I mean, we, we grow a diversity of, of things, but garlic is one of them. Uh, garlic is not only food, but it's also medicine. Uh, and the perfect kind of a medicine for um, so many of the health problems that we have here in Baltimore City, diabetes, heart problems, uh, you know, it's good for circulation, et cetera. So we're talking about uh, a really important crop for the city. Um, and the market is unlimited. There's no way, uh, you know, I, last year I, we grew about 3,000 garlics um, and we sold them all out. I kept some for seed, um, but there's no way I could possibly grow enough garlic to come close to the amount of garlic that is consumed in Baltimore, and that's just one product. So, um, you know, with with each of the products that you think about, and some of them are not just, you know, you grow a tomato, but maybe you upscale it, you grow a tomato and you make tomato sauce. Um, so with each of these things that... Uh, that can be grown or produced, the market is is huge out there. So, you know, we could be farming on every vacant lot. We could be farming on school land. I mean, imagine how much school land there is in Baltimore City that's available for farming. And we have science curriculums that are really, really, really lacking. Combine the, farm, the science curriculums uh, with the land that exists on schools, and you have a wonderful solution to a, a several huge problems. Um, and by the way, you know, that when we talk about how to think about a long-term solution, in my mind, that is one of the main ways. You know, we need to not just um, plant food, but we need to plant farmers. And by exposing mm. kids and exposing people in the community, a lot of times people in our communities even have connections to agriculture in their past or in their families, but it's been lost. Uh, when people are exposed to it, when they, they start to get their hands dirty to really actually get their hands in the earth, um, an excitement happens, and then we begin to think about, have we planted a farmer? Have we, you know? And with each new farmer, Man, you have all kinds of potential. You have the same vision. I do. Um, I I have that vision plus. I wouldn't say the next step because I'm not the end all and be all on this, but uh, in terms of where we are now and what we're ready for, I think that we are ready for investment. And you know, we talk a lot about this. I talk a lot. Amongst the Farm Alliance, I talk a lot amongst other farmers and foodie people that I know. And just in how do we we talk about viability. Um, and the reality is that our current food system is built on subsidies and it's built on investment from our government. And at this point, um, the grassroots food movement that we have created in cities needs investment. And wh- wherever that comes from, it comes, you know, from Big Ag, from um 
from the government and you know they get all types of subsidies and so as I'm listening to Spilly talk and he's talking about his garlic the question in my head is like huh is he actually getting you know does he know for sure what his profit margin is on this product like how many hours is he tracking how many hours it costs him to put into garlic now garlic happens to be a really easy thing to grow Um, and if as long as your soil is good um, but I was I'm thinking this too I'm like huh you know like what type of things is he putting in his soil Um, and how is he maintaining a good garlic crop years and years and years down the road is he selling his garlic at the highest price that it can get or is he selling it in a way that makes him a lot of money because um, you know talking having grown garlic myself and talking to other people who have um, had more co- commercial ventures garlic is one of those crops that you can either get a ton of money for it or you don't get that much uh-huh. for it because the consumers really aren't willing to pay how much it costs to to grow some of those more high-end crops of garlic. And so just on that one crop, the potential is there. But in terms of how do we actually pay the farmers and how do we get them enough money to pay their mortgage, um, I see we need more infrastructure to do it. We need... um, we need to be in cahoots with one another so that we, you know, just like the chocolate growers do and, you know, just like the oil, like all of these people, um, when we come together in cooperatives and we're saying, okay, this is the price that we're selling our garlic for and this is what we expect and we're all working together. Um, and so, you know, organizations like the Farm Alliance help to provide a platform for that. Um, but I think there's so much more that we can be doing in terms of working together because the land is there and the public interest is getting there. Um, But what's missing, I think, is the investment of time from the people who are growing in terms and and with respect to getting on board with one another and the investment of dollars from, you know, all of the the government folks that say that they want their cities to be healthy, um, but are not necessarily supporting these projects with funds. You have thoughts about sausage just said before we come back to your farm and what you're going to be teaching in a moment? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, th- I think uh, it works on two different levels because I agree that we need to engage the current economy of food and that in doing so, there's all kinds of potential to make money. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, this can't just be a hobby if it's going to be a sustainable uh, piece of a changing economy for our city. Um, at the same time, though, you know, this is Baltimore. I mean, we, uh, part of our aesthetic, I guess you would say, at Hackle Farm is we want to do everything cheap or free. We find recycled material. We made a greenhouse out of uh, nothing, no cost. It was all found materials. Um, there's such a potential for that. And when you start tapping into that on the, uh, on the output part as well, you know, our neighbors eat well. Uh, they end up giving us <coughs> things all the time because we're giving them eggs. Uh, now we're starting to connect with them to, uh, to farm their backyards or to get them into farming. So now down the block, we're starting to, to create kind of a, a a bigger farm that is all these smaller connected farms. And once you start doing that, you can actually have, there's tremendous potential to bypass the economy that exists, which, you know, I happen to believe is is a really evil capitalist 
uh, economy that, uh, particularly in Trump's America, uh, you know, we have to face all kinds of realities about that. You know, and you know, while I would like to think that we have the government on our side, I don't believe that we have that the ability to look forward into the future as small farmers, as urban farmers, and to think that we have that kind of subsidy money on our side. So we might not ever have that. And so at some point, uh, urban farming also becomes a potential for going completely underground in communities and making sure that people have food to survive. You know, lamb's quarter is a, a plant that grows everywhere mm -hmm. in Baltimore City. It's more nutritious and delicious than spinach. It grows free. So, you know, yeah. No, 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 no. I think it's important. And I love we didn't get a chance to get into it, but I do want to get into it with you at some point, which is this, the, the thing you had there with no more lawns, which is I, I love the idea of turning lawns I'm into I'm all for it. <laughs> lawns into farms. As at my, my old lawn, I turned into a cornfield many couple decades ago and some neighbors hated it some people loved it and I gave them corn and they started saying oh I'll get right. corn <laughs> right so I mean it, it's um, yeah that, that stuff is really important let's get a call here before we have to take a break and go to our next segment and have some closing thoughts from our guests here 410-319-8888 James you have a question welcome yeah I have a hey how, how y'all doing very well I got a, I got a question I got like a, a almost a three quarter acre lot in Baltimore City that's like an uh, open grass lot in uh, Merle Park, how do, who do I talk to about doing something like that, doing a farm, or leasing it out, or something like that? That's a really good question. I mean, it's all flat. It's right in the woods. It's in the woods? Close to the woods. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's farming. <laughs> <laughs> Moral, I don't know where Merle Park is, so where would he go? <laughs> well, I mean, your best bet uh, would be to contact the, the city's Adopt-A-Lot program. He owns the uh, land, though. Do you own the land? It's his, yeah, land. Land, yeah. it's his land. Oh, well, land. then do it. <laughs> that's, that's it. Um, you can get with the, um, well, let's see. How can we get you some equipment? So I know the Baltimore Tool Bank has some tillers in their um, in their repertoire that you may be able to, um, to like, use to plow up the grass. Um, but that's, that's, I mean, there's really nothing to it but to do it. You would you would have to the you can either do it one of two ways you can you can get a sod cutter and cut the grass off or you can get a, a disker or some type of tiller and till the grass into the soil. I would advocate the second one though you will need a higher power equipment to do that. Uh, what about you, teacher? Well, you know, <laughs> so uh, I would say first of all, check out the school, the agriculture school that I went to, or the two agriculture schools that I went to. Uh, University of YouTube and <laughs> co College of Google um, because, you know, there's a million questions as you get started with farming, as you get obsessed with it. Uh, there's so many questions. Also realize that there's so many failures that are going to happen as you're creating success. Uh, you know, most of us don't come from a farming tradition, and so a lot of the basic knowledge has been lost. Um, you can contact other farmers, and there's not a huge amount of them, but there's a growing amount of them. Uh, you know, I'll give Mark uh, my info, and you know, you what can get in your touch with teaching? us uh, on Facebook. We're Heckle Farm, H-E-C-K-E-L Farm, and uh, we're 
shortly later on this week we're going to post up the full schedule and have brown paper tickets to come to to classes um so there's there there are a lot of people out there that you can uh find to give you advice uh springtime is coming fast uh the first thing that you want to throw in is stuff like radishes and kale so you know, um, what we'll do is we'll come back and maybe we can, James, if you leave your phone number, maybe we can give it to these two folks here and they can maybe can get in touch with you. For sure. I can show cool? you better than I right. can tell you. So, uh, <laughs> you we'll pick up, get your phone number. Uh, I'll share it with both Sasha and Spilly before they go. Spilly, how do people get in touch for your class? Uh, get in touch with us uh, on Heckle Farm Facebook page. Um, we're also on Instagram or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not the one. Uh, well, where is the one? Uh, she's at home listening. Uh, she pays attention to that stuff. I think it's Instagram. Uh, and, uh, yeah. So um, I want to thank both of you. We're going to do more of this and really get some farming tips and have these folks back to continue a conversation with these two and local farming and where to go and what to do. Uh, they're two really amazing people. Uh, you just heard Spilly. Uh, Andres Spiliadis is known as Spilly, farmer. Uh, he and his lady have Heckle Farm and are performing with Baltimore Hoop Love. Uh, they have Farm and Circus. Good to have you here, Spilly, always. Thank you, Mark. Sasha Jones is back in the house once again. We're so happy to see her. Collective sales manager at the Farm Alliance Baltimore, which is just an explosive young group of women doing incredible work in this town. Uh, and Along with one of my dear friends. I didn't realize she was working with you all now. Oh, Stacy or Francisco? Yeah. Stacy Francisco. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Great lady, great lady. Yeah, it, I don't know so, how it happened that it's all women, but yeah, it's just us. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing <laughs> wrong with that. So that's really good. And let me remind you all as we take a break before we go to our next segment that this weekend is the uh, Future Harvest Casa uh, meeting. It's taking place today, tomorrow, and Saturday. You can go to futureharvestcasa.org. And I'll be moderating a panel there tomorrow at 245 in College Park on food and ag policies in Virginia, Maryland, West Virginia, and Delaware with a panel from across those states. Uh, you can join us for that as well, and we'll be airing that um, in one of our new sound bites coming up in the next couple of weeks. Uh, but I want to thank both Spilly and Sasha for joining us. It's been a great conversation. I'm really excited about the work that the two of you guys are doing, uh, and we're going to do a lot more of this when you get out there in the field and do some taping at your place and mm-hmm. do some taping with these great ladies doing their work over there at Farm Alliance. Mm-hmm. So I think it's great. Sounds great. Yeah, you guys are great. Thanks. Awesome. Thank they you. They are our future folks. <laughs> this is cool. So we're going to take a short break and we're going to have a little debate discussion on the role of uh, agribusinesses and research. Stay with us. Welcome back, folks. Good to have you with us here on the Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites, our weekly look at food, farming, uh, agriculture, our energy systems, and our environment. And uh, on our way there, let me remind you that uh, the Mark Steiner Show is brought to you in part by MeQ, Baltimore's credit union, offering a full range of financial services. MeQ, Baltimore's credit union, is helping its members and its community prosper for the last 80 years. When you invest in yourself, MeQ invests in you. Remember, it's a credit union, not just a bank, belongs to you. Money comes back in the end. More information at www.mecu.com or at steinershow.org is MeQ, Baltimore Credit Union's banner. We are now going to take, uh, have a discussion with a really interesting discussion about the future of agriculture and science and research uh, with our two guests. Lindsay A. Thompson is with us. She is executive director of the Delaware, Maryland Agribusiness Association. Lindsay, welcome. Good to have you with us. Thanks. Good to be here, Mark. And Patty Levera joins us, Assistant Director of Food and Water Watch. Patty, good to have you back. 
Hi, thanks for having me. And y'all can join us here at 410-319-8888. Write to us here at talk at steinershow.org. Uh, by email, you can also tweet us at Mark Steiner, whatever uh, makes it work for you. But do join us at 410-319-8888 if you can. Uh, so there was this, what kicked this off for me, this discussion, was not, we've covered this before on the show, but it was an article in the New York Times uh, by Danny Hakim, which was scientists loved and loathed by an agrochemical giant. Uh, the, about this kind of intersection of corporate uh, research and uh, the research going on about agriculture and pesticides and, 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 and the, the part of the spirit of the article was that a, that a lot of questions were raised about the power of agribusinesses to kind of influence the work of scientists and what we're facing in this 21st century. This was built around bees and, and pollinators uh, with Syngenta, which is a, a huge uh, agribusiness. Um, and so we're going to start there. And, and so, Lindsay, could you open up with your first commentary on that, your thoughts on that? Sure, Mark. So um, looking at the article that you're uh, talking about specifically, I was unaware that that's what prompted the conversation, but I'm peeking over it now. Um, You know, just in general, I would say that the role of public-private partnerships um, in the research of agrochemicals, um, crop protection products is, is very important. Um, in the research and the development, um, and also in determining the needs of communities across across the world for these different products. Um, it has always been my experience um, here in the U.S. and with the partners that I work with that, you know, they value the insight and all of the research that's done at um, at universities, as long as they're following um, sound scientific methods and have them peer reviewed, um, you know this pseudoscience word comes up a lot. But I wouldn't say that um, that any of the companies that I represent consider research coming out of um, universities or private researchers to be pseudoscience, as long as it's backed up like I said, with good scientific methods um, and peer-reviewed and published in reputable journals. So, so Patty Lever, so, so, well, I mean, it seems to me that, that is it something new or is it something that's been around for uh, ages and ages for companies like Syngenta and others, uh, Bayer, to, to, and people did it in the in photochemical industry and, and everywhere else, um, to hire scientists to do research? It's not new. Uh, I think it's finally getting some long overdue exposure and, and more debate. And it's not isolated to agriculture, if we think about it, right? We've had this conversation about, um, you know, what medical journals require people to disclose when they're putting in, you know, putting uh, studies in to be published about drugs. Did drug companies have something to do with that research? So, you know, there's a bigger conversation, but it's, it's a long overdue conversation in agriculture. I mean, one particular trend, you know, that we looked at a few years ago was just, you know, a lot of the the research for agriculture comes out of specific universities, land-grant universities. Every state has one, and they're kind of the powerhouses of agricultural research. And, you know, historically, they got a lot of public money uh, to do research, and a lot of things that, you know, farmers have used for a long time, for generations, came out of those land-grant universities. And the public investment has been going down, so it's not super surprising that private investment has gone up um, to replace it. And so the questions we need to be asking are, what does that do in terms of just even setting the research questions? You know, are we 
Are the, is that money going to go to answering basic questions about understanding how, you know, farm-wide systems and how things interplay with each other, or is it going to be towards more research and development of, like, the next product? And so, you know, what kind of, what is the research question? And then we have to ask specific questions about was there any influence over that research because of the source of the funding? So that's, that, I guess that's the question that at the heart of this, whether it's this article or any, any of the plethora of articles that I know, Lindsay Thompson, you've read and been aware of, uh, that are saying that, 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 that um, there is kind of an unf- a, a, a push by industry to influence the research of their scientists, which is part of the basis of this article and other articles as well. I mean, you've heard that argument before. It's not, it's not a new argument people are making. <clears throat> so, and, and, and that, you know, our university systems in many ways are tied to bringing in research money, much of that coming in from industry. So, I mean, are there, so, so, uh, when people say that this is kind of um, unduly influencing the outcome of, of, uh, of scientific work, how does the industry respond? I think that Patty made a really great point in saying that these land-grant universities who are the ones who have the advanced agricultural programs are the ones, for the most part, doing um, the research on these products, whether it's in the development phase or um, just in the agronomic use phase, so more of the information on um, you know, the impacts and how farmers are using them. Um, I think that that's a logical connection there. And while the public money and the public funding has dried up for this kind of research, I think that industry has really stepped up in order to um, fill that void of funding for these universities and these programs so that the, con- um, so that the research can continue And the point that I would like to make is that I, um, in my experience, it's never been the intention of a company, a private company, um, to fund research with the expectation of influencing the outcome. Uh, With those public universities, um, the companies respect all open records laws. Uh, That's a vital safeguard to to our society. And so, um, you know, they don't have a problem with those research records being opened up or um, people knowing that they are funding that research. And I think that if there were a concern about uh, the image of influence with them funding that research, then they wouldn't want people to know about it. Um, But they do respect those open records laws. Um, And then also, I think that something that we need to, to think about is that even if the research is funded by a company and conducted at a public university, um, if they want to be published in any reputable journal, they need to be peer-reviewed. And those individuals that are peer-reviewing that research and looking over all of the methods that were involved, um, you know, people aren't being, in most cases, paid by industry. Uh, so there is that additional safeguard in there as well. Patty? Um we think that there needs to be more safeguards. Um, you know, we have, like Food and Water Watch has used those public record processes to look at this. And some states, it worked pretty well, wasn't too hard. In other states, it was a battle um, to get the information out. And there's more, there, there's more that land grants could do to be more transparent about that. So you don't have to file, you know, the equivalent of your state's version of freedom of information to get that information. And we also, in again, this. It's a pretty broad um, sector of the economy. We're looking at this is not a unique problem to it, but we 
when we did specific projects to go look at this, the other piece of it, the journals, you know, is that a safeguard on what gets published and what makes it the kind of being deemed official? It got published in a peer-reviewed journal. So we just looked at that in particular for um, some of the major journals that deal with veterinary drugs, just one thing, to try to make it a manageable project. And when we looked at those journals, you know, many of them have not just industry um, support, you know, advertising or sponsoring of conferences, they have, you know, people who work for companies on the editorial board, or they run the journal outright. So that isn't enough of a safeguard. And we think it's why actually agriculture has lagged behind some other things like human medicine, in terms of getting the journals to disclose funding when they publish the paper. So why is, Pat, let me ask a question before we go back to Lindsay, why is that important? Well, you know, I think we we think that that, the, the transparency is a first step. I mean, we would like to see you know, funding that we prefer, you know, the previous trend where there was more funding coming from the public sector with less strings attached because at the end of it, um, there's also less pressure that every research project turns into a a product you can patent, you know, and sell the patent to a company and kind of financializing the the end result of all the research. That's something that happens with this shift towards private funding. Um, And there's lots of ramifications of that in places like seeds and, and, you know, the patents on seeds and things like that. But for the first step before all of that gets fixed is more transparency, and the journals could be a force for that transparency. And, you know, the, the best example I can give to somebody who's not in agriculture, but it's related, is nutrition. We're slowly learning more and more about the role of various food companies in funding research about what do we know about sugar, what do we know about this. And, you know, if there's a new study published in some prominent journal about how chocolate is good for you, I think the public deserves to know that, you know, a candy company paid for that study. So so is that important, Lindsay, from your perspective? I do think that's important, Mark. You know, I don't think that um, the obstruction potentially is coming from the companies, um, but more so if there's issues um, with the land-grant universities or the journals releasing that information, I think the fear is really oftentimes that just that appearance of a conflict of interest, even if one does not exist. But I would really encourage um, all of those doing research and those running the journals to stand behind those that are doing their research and reviewing their research um, and prove that no matter where the funding is coming from, you know, this is good, reputable research. And I think um, if I may digress just for a second to another source of funding, um, a lot of the states have farmer-run organizations um, and checkoff programs where the um, commodity farmers will um, fund research most of the time through the universities. But this is a different independent source. And we have to remember that the companies um, that are producing these products and selling them to their customers are ultimately accountable to those customers. And the farmers want to know that what they're using um, is safe for the environment and for people, um, and that ultimately it's necessary and it's going to work to grow a productive crop. Um, So there is also that additional uh, funding source outside of the companies uh, to review those those products as well. Um, and most of the checkoff programs are very transparent in who they fund. Um, you can find Maryland's uh, checkoff-funded research right on the grain producer's website and see who the researchers are and things of that nature. So if people 
um, are concerned about just the companies funding the research, not only the companies. So the, the question is, how do we, I guess part of the question is the people that were raising these articles is, Patty Levera, that how do we know who's behind anything? I mean, um, one of the things, or who's, you know, funding what in America and, 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 and wh- where that comes from, one of the things that this article pointed out was that um, an agreement between the United States, I'll read this piece, that, that the United States Department of Agriculture and Syngenta uh, was a five-year non-disclosure form around research and development activities, manufacturing processes, financial market information related to crop protection and seed technologies. Uh, another scientist was kind of barred from disclosing information from a symposium she in- attended. I mean, so the the question becomes, I mean, I think people just don't know. And how much can we know? And how does a process like that even work? Right, I, right. So, I mean, this is a, an example and the, you know, the kind of the, opening of that particular article was somebody, it was a researcher, uh, who said he initially went down this road and after years of doing it became uncomfortable with, with what he felt were strings attached or just the overall experience. And so I think different people have drawn different lines about what they're, you know, what agreements they're willing to make in exchange for, for getting research funding and what they're not. And I think it just speaks to a little bit of the chaos that we're in right now. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of attention about this on seeds, uh, especially GMO seeds, the affiliated chemicals that are used to grow them, the herbicides, and it, it, it pops up in every debate we have where there's science. So if we're talking about, you know, the EPA is talking about the safety of uh, Roundup, you know, an herbicide that's commonly used because we have Roundup-ready seeds that can be grown with it, and this became a huge piece of the debate. They had a public meeting uh, sometime in December, in mid-December, and this was woven into the middle of all of it, of which studies make the cut and which ones don't, and it's not settled. You know, in Europe, uses different studies in their assessment than we do. So this is actively being debated, and it, and it is leading to a lot of confusion in terms of using science and how we make rules and how we make decisions. And, you know, transparency isn't going to fix everything, but it would be a start. So, and, and let me also apologize. I didn't realize that you did not the article we were talking about. That was We should have sent that to you, so I apologize for that. Catch you off guard like this. Um, n- not intentional at all. Um, That's quite all right. Uh, but, but this started out with a debate over a, both in Britain and here, over studies that were done um, where, you know, where a, where a scientist working on uh, the question of what is kind of a, a, attacking these crops and with bee col- killing bee colonies, I should say, and most of the scientists said Varroa might. And when he was leaning towards that way, being pushed to say by the company, well, expand your research so maybe there's something else out there you're missing. That this kind of influence is what I think he was focusing on, uh, along with the need for places to kind of raise money and, and how that could affect the outcome. I mean, is there... And which is different from a Syngenta or Bayer or anybody else doing research within their companies to develop product. Do you understand that, what I'm saying? So, I, mean, I so, do. Yeah. Um, and I think back to my point earlier, I really like the quote in the article from Dr. Goulson where he says, you can't win. If you're funded by industry, people are suspicious of your research. And if you're not funded by industry, you're accused of being a tree-hugging, greeny activist. There's no scientist who comes out of this unscathed. And I think that we're, we're seeing this more and more, um, you know, that divergence between the two camps of the scientific community, those who um, won't accept industry money based on principle, those who won't accept industry money um, pretty much based on fear 
of uh, being accused of impropriety. Um, and then those who are funded by industry who have to continually defend their research. Um, and I think it goes it goes both ways, you know, no matter if you're funded by industry or if you're funded by um, friends of the earth or whoever it is, um, whoever your research is funded by, there's going to be that appearance of a um, jadedness towards their interest. Um, and so I, I agree with Patty. I think that um, having the transparency is really, really important um, so people can understand uh, where the research is coming from. But then the necessity is really to consider that research at its um, in-depth and face value based on the methods which it was um, conducted under. And so, um, you know, the average, and then we also have to consider the government layer of this, you know, the Environmental Protection Agency has their scientific advisory panel, which I would argue um, is a very diverse group of scientists who go over all of the registrations of the crop protection products. Um, a crop protection product can take upwards of 10 years to come to market. A GM seed is an average of 13. Um, so it's not that we... Um, as industry are not going through a very arduous process to bring these products to market, considering the human and the environmental impacts, but also um, how these products are going to work for our farmers. So, Patty, so where's the disconnect? Well, I mean, the disconnect is when we're having fights. <laughs> these are fights in the political arena, uh, and and you know, off and science becomes a tool in that fight. So, for the example of the one I gave in December, the EPA had this science panel convene, you know, as one step in their long process of whether they're going to allow Roundup, you know, to stay on the market. They had scheduled that meeting earlier in the fall. Um, you know, the trade association for for the this industry, for the, you know, pesticide industry, raised objections about one particular scientist who had been picked to be on the panel. And, they're, they, and they started throwing around that he had conflicts because he had spoken publicly that he was concerned about health effects of this chemical. They canceled the meeting. They rescheduled the meeting. This guy's magically not on it. They said he wasn't available. He came anyway and said, I was available. They didn't put me on the panel for the second meeting. <laughs> so, I mean, this is what we're dealing with. These are places where we're supposed to be having, you know, Having the conversation about what a protective regulation is, and when you have this kind of thread of is this science neutral, it, it clearly has become not neutral, and it's really kind of underlying a lot of important decisions we have to make on a lot of issues. So I'm, I'm curious what both of you think where this issue is going to get play in the next four years, um, because a lot of this is at the federal level, obviously, um, and w w the issue of transparency, where it will go. I mean, I, and I wonder... Um, how this will really become a public part of our conversation or even pushed as an idea, this whole notion of, of transparency and research. Lindsay? I mean, yeah, Lindsay? Sure. So I think that having um, consistency within our regulatory agencies is really important. Um, speaking to Patty's point um, on atrazine specifically, there was a previous scientific advisory panel that was convened and deemed the research of Dr. Tyrone Hayes um, in regards to the impacts of atrazine right. on amphibians. Right, guess in the show. You know, you know, they wanted that excluded, but then it was ultimately included in the environmental impact study. So just to clear that up, that was, we just need some consistency among um, the process at the federal level 
as regards to registration goes. Um, but as far as transparency, like I said, I would really advocate for researchers on both sides to stand up for their science, regardless of where their funding is coming from. But going back to um, the, the quote that I had said earlier, it's kind of no matter where your funding is coming from, somebody's going to ask questions. So if people are going to be transparent and disclose, then both the agricultural or, you know, the crop protection community as well as the activist community um, needs to stand behind um, that research based on their own independent review of that research, no matter where the funding's coming from. Lindsay, I mean, I mean Patty, I'm sorry. Well, I mean, yeah, that, that's a great question about the next four years, which I'm, I can't really hazard a guess on. <laughs> but, I mean, one thing that should happen, I won't say has to, but should happen is, you know, we're going to have a farm bill discussion at some point. And, you know, the USDA has historically been a source of funding, um, you know, to these land-grant universities and things that farmers used for years, like they're called, you know, public cultivars, like publicly available, non-patented, don't have the licensing fees, seeds used to come out of that system. So there are places we could have a conversation to say, you know, we could have more public money that has hopefully less appearance of conflict and less actual conflicts, you know, flowing into the system because we still have problems to solve and we still have research we got to do. That's one thing that should be happening in Congress in the next couple of years. And this should be, you know, the Farm Bill should not just be about, um, you know, crop insurance and things like that. It should also be about this research infrastructure, which is historically part of our food system and we got to maintain it. So we are going to come back to this very soon and really look at very specifics in our next conversations, longer conversations with both uh, these women representing the agriculture in this country. Uh, Batty Oliveira is Assistant Director of Food and Water Watch. Lindsay A. Thompson is the Executive Director of the Delaware, Maryland Agribusiness Association. Thank you both so much for taking your time. Look forward to having you both back very soon uh, for more specifics. Great. Thank you. Good to have you both here. Thanks, Patty. So I want to thank everybody for being part of our program today and uh, showing up here for the Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites, which are productions of the Center for Emerging Media and made possible in part by a grant from the Town Creek Foundation. Our senior producer is Mark Gunnery. Our producer is Imani Spence. Our production assistant is Nadia Romligan. Our research producer is Calvin Perry. Our engineer is Andre Melton. Our theme music is by Wal Matthews of Clean Cuts. Send me your thoughts about today's program to talk at steinershow.org. Or you can podcast the show at soundshow.org as well and download it for you and your friends or use your favorite podcasting app. And for your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, I'm Mark Steiner. Take care.